Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at online. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 24 of our series, Long Story Short. We're taking a whole year to read through the Bible and we are only a couple weeks away from being at the halfway point. We're about to get to the peak and it's all downhill from there, but the good kind of downhill. We are going to be in the book of Ezekiel today. We spent some time last week looking at the first vision and commission Ezekiel receives from God as he is a prophet to the people in exile in Babylon. It's probably not the job or place Ezekiel was expecting his life to end up, but he faithfully executes his calling to a rebellious people. But, spoiler alert, even though it's not that surprising, the people continue to ignore the call of God for the most part. But God continues to sprinkle good news in with judgment, and we're going to look at some of that good news today. But before we get into the book, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen or read a story in the news about someone who had filed some sort of lawsuit, either against a person or a company, and you thought, come on, like, really? You're going to sue someone over that? That's ridiculous. Like, in 2006, there was a case where a man in Portland named Alan Heckard filed a lawsuit against Michael Jordan for $416 million because Michael Jordan looked like him. And he looked like Michael Jordan. And Heckard had been mistaken for the NBA superstar for 15 years and had grown tired of it. Heckard told the court that Jordan caused him emotional pain, suffering, defamation, personal injury. Heckard eventually dropped the suit. Or in 2012, when a husband and wife had a baby together and the husband saw his newborn daughter and he claimed, quote, she was incredibly ugly. And did not, uh, he did, the girl didn't look like either parent, and he accused his wife of cheating on him. At that point, the wife admitted she had several plastic surgeries before they had met, and he sued her on the grounds of false pretenses, claiming she misled him by hiding her cosmetic history. He won the case, and his wife had to pay him $120,000. Or in 1993, Richard Overton sued Anheuser Busch for $10,000 for false advertising. He claimed the beer ads caused him emotional stress and financial loss. He said the company's ads showed beer's ability to enable scenic, tropical settings and beautiful women and men engaged in unrestricted merriment, when that was not actually the case in his life. He also lost the suit. And all the time, our insurance rates keep going up because we live in a world where people regularly shift the blame. It's not my fault. It's them, you know. It's fill in the blank. I'm not responsible for that behavior. It's somebody else's fault. It's because I had bad parents. It's because I grew up in a dysfunctional home. But doesn't everybody grow up with some dysfunction in their home? Or it's because I have a certain personality type or because I'm just having a bad day. It's very rare for people to actually take responsibility for themselves. But if you have been reading along with us, we have seen this from like page three of the Bible. Shifting the blame is as old as the human race. It appears that the blame game goes all the way back to our original human examples. You remember, God shows up in the garden, says, Adam, 
what in the world happened, man? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. Shifting the blame has been happening in our world forever. It appears acceptable. It might even be profitable in some cases, but it doesn't fit in God's kingdom ethic. Today we're going to look at one of the clearest chapters in the Bible about how God feels about personal responsibility and about what he feels like when people try to shift the blame. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezekiel. Now, if you remember, Ezekiel is a prophet for God. He's God's spokesman. Um, So let's just set the background for Ezekiel. The people of Israel, they're living where? In the country of Babylon. Why? Because they're being punished by God. They're in exile. They've not been living according to the Torah for a long time. And God said this is what was going to happen to them. God is punishing them for not living according to the Torah, worshiping all kinds of different gods and doing all kinds of things that were wrong. And so they are living in Babylon. They're in exile, and it's not going well for them in Babylon. And some of them are blaming their parents, and they're saying, well, it's not our fault. It's their fault. And they, you know, they know this well-known ancient proverb to justify their feelings, and we're going to see that in the first few verses. Ezekiel 18, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. We'll stop here for a second, because this question and this proverb kind of set the stage for the rest of the chapter. This is an old proverb. It's an ancient Near Eastern proverb, and it actually occurs in another chapter we've read a couple weeks ago, Jeremiah 31. It's old, and it's a bit complex. It's not easy for us to get our modern minds around. So let's look at it again. The parents are the ones that eat the sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So do you get it? So the parents have done something in eating sour grapes, and their children, who are not eating the sour grapes, they are affected by it. It's complex because in many Proverbs, there are different interpretations. And you can take this proverb in a couple of different ways. One way to take the proverb is that it just simply is an observation of life. It's just the way that life works. One generation does something, and that has an effect on the next generation. And that can be for all kinds of things, good things and bad. I mean, for example, if you think about our country, the United States today is like it is in large extent because of previous generations. Their hard work and sacrifice and toil gave us the country that we have. So their decisions affected us, even though they might not be around anymore. So we can have positive impacts like that, but we can also have negative ones. The idea that one generation's good or evil can affect another generation, it's just an observation. It's it's in this way that, that Yahweh means in the second command in the Torah when we read this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is in the context of not worshiping anything or anyone but Yahweh. Because if you do this, this has an effect. It has consequences portrayed in that verse as God visiting the sins on another generation. And if you think about the way Israelites used to live, they were very nomadic. You'd have two or three generations living in the same tent. So it makes sense if one parent or both sets of parents in a generation were idolatrous, 
They turned away from the Torah. They left Yahweh. They started worshiping idols. They bring their whole family with them as they travel. So it affects one generation and another generation and another generation. It doesn't mean that God arbitrarily rains down his wrath on kids when they have nothing to do with uh, any of the choices made. Christopher writes in his book this, In the Hebrew idiom that is expressed as God visiting the sins of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation, this does not mean that God deliberately and arbitrarily punishes children for the sins they have not committed. It does mean that human beings are not isolated in their actions, but inevitably involve others, and especially their family, in the consequences of their sin. All he's saying there is that one way to understand this proverb is that what one generation does has an effect on another generation. That's one way to take the proverb. But there's another way to take the proverb. If you go back to Ezekiel 18 and look at it again, I'll change one of the conjunctions. The parents eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. This way of taking it is the way the people of Israel were taking it. They're saying, our parents are the ones to blame. They did this thing. They are the ones who ate sour grapes, but it's affecting us. We're not to blame for our behavior. It's their fault. Our parents, they're the ones who sinned. Our grandparents, they sinned. And you're punishing us for their sins. That's a problem, God. Like, you have a problem. I'm not responsible for my behavior. It's the fault of my parents. So get off of our backs. Get off of our case. I mean, this is why we're worshiping Babylonian gods. This is why we have Babylonian morals. And this is why we're doing what we're doing in Babylon. It's not our fault. It's our parents' fault. That's the way the people of Israel were using that proverb. And that did not sit well with God because they were not taking responsibility for their own sinful actions. Because If you're reading the book of Ezekiel, you're seeing plenty of verses about the fact that Israel was not being obedient to God. They were trying to get off the hook, blaming their parents. Here's how God responds to that. Verse 3. As surely as I live, declares sovereign Yahweh, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. God says, just a second here, you can't quote this proverb and get off the hook. And he makes this very broad, universal, sweeping claim. Everyone is responsible to me. Your parents are responsible to me. The kids are responsible to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. In the context of this chapter, it means he's the one. She's the one who will be judged by me. Now, this can be a little confusing, which is why I think God goes on to give three case studies to make his point. And we're going to read through the three all at once. But here's the principle that's going to surface. The one who sins is the one who will die. Each person is responsible for their own behavior. Don't shift the blame. Three case studies starting in verse five. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest and take profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares Sovereign Yahweh. Suppose he has a violent son 
who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the Father has done none of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to idols. He does detestable things. He lends at interest and takes a profit. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he is to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor and takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So three observations from this principle and these case studies. The first observation we can pick up on from reading these case studies is the idea of what God means when he talks about righteousness and unrighteousness. Sometimes when we talk about righteousness, I think our brains kind of shut off for a second because it's such a religious word. And maybe we don't even have a good idea of what that means. These stories, these case studies, tell you what God believes righteousness is. Righteousness is about relationship. The first guy has a great relationship with people, great relationship with people who are poor, people who are facing injustice, and he treats them fairly. The second person has bad relationships with those kinds of people. He's always about himself. He doesn't treat the poor fairly. The third guy is about great relationships again. So it's just a general observation about what God thinks righteousness is all about. Righteousness is this fancy word about right relationships. Now, the first Sunday in October, we're finally going to reach the New Testament, and the reading for that day will have us listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to find that the Sermon on the Mount is all about right relationships. That's simply what righteousness is. And we have three stories here about three people. Two were righteous, one was unrighteous. The wicked person will get what he deserves, the righteous people will get what they deserve. Each person is responsible for their own behavior. There is a correlation between righteousness and our relationship with other people. Second observation, this is good news, and this is a big one. The cycle of sin can stop. Look at verse 14. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does no such things. So the third generation son sees all the sin his second generation father commits, and he says, you know what? I'm not going to be like my father. And the cycle stops. Now that was probably a bad home to be raised in, but the cycle stopped. 
He did not have to do what his father did. And he changes and takes control of his own life. He lives a different life, takes a different path. Now, I know there are people in our church who have this story. The house that they were raised in was not one that brought glory to God, and yet they have decided to live a different life. Some were raised in very difficult environments. Many still have wounds and carry the scars, but the scars do not define us. What God has done in our lives defines us. You can be like that, but you can't do it by yourself. And we, as a Christ-following community, we want to come around people who have been scarred in life. We are just a group of imperfect people who worship a perfect God. We have all been rescued from something, and we are all rescued for something, to help others to the glory of God. So the first observation is that righteousness is all about relationships. Second observation is that the cycle of sin can stop. The third observation is also powerful, but it should also scare us a bit. Just like the cycle of sin can stop, the cycle of righteousness can also stop. We see the first generation, the guy, he lived his life well, and then he had a son who was not like him at all. This is one of the most frightening aspects of being followers of Christ and raising children, leading the next generation to Christ, passing down faith so that it becomes the faith of the next generation. We probably all know people who have lived faithful lives, but who have children who are not walking with God. And it's painful. Like you did your very best, and yet they're not walking with God right now. In fact, some of them are doing the exact opposite of what we tried to teach them. And sometimes when we come to a place like church, you know, we feel this weight of guilt. Like somebody is preaching a message on responsibility. And we think, man, if only, if only, if only. And sometimes we can't go to sleep at night because we're just rolling in a bed of, if only, if only I had done this, if only I had said that, if only this, my kids wouldn't be. And we're just like killing ourselves. But listen, people are responsible for their own decisions. You can raise your kids to the best of your ability and you can do everything as godly as possible. But it's the responsibility of your children to follow the Lord. It's their decision. They make the decision. Just continue to be faithful in your role. So we read this and we ask, okay, what does God want us to do? He wants each and every single individual to take responsibility for their own behavior. Stop shifting the blame. He makes that very clear in verse 30. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares Sovereign Yahweh. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares Sovereign Yahweh. Repent and live. What God wants the people of Israel to do, what He wants us to do, is to come to Him, to turn to Him. You know, a lot of times we read these passages in the Old Testament and we think, well, The Old Testament God is this bad God. He's mean. He's like, burn, burn, burn. And then the New Testament God is a great God. Oh, he loves people, you know? But there's no difference. God always has been gracious. Look at Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, As surely as I live, declares Sovereign Yahweh, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Sometimes we look at people and we judge them as wicked and we think, I hope they get theirs. You know, like I hope they get the judgment they deserve. Even the worst people in our world, 
God does not take pleasure in their death. He wants people to turn and come to him. He knows what awaits those who refuse him, and he doesn't want that for them. He wants repentance so they can find life. He's always been a gracious God. God wants the best for people. He wants people to flourish. He says, listen, take responsibility for your own behavior. Come to me. Admit who you are, and I'll just rain down grace on you. Now, we haven't yet hit the dog days of summer, but they're coming. Tennessee knows hot and humid, where you just melt into a puddle of sweat. It's miserable. And yet, my kids want to be outside. But despite their desire to play, there comes a point when they come to their senses and they ask for some sort of relief from their misery. And as their father, let me tell you, it brings me great joy to give them comfort from the heat. I, heat, I turn on the hose, I fill up a little pool, we lay out a slip and slide, we connect a sprinkler, we open the freezer, we share popsicles in the shade. Now they can continue to be stubborn and miserable in the sweltering heat, or they can accept the free gifts of comfort their father offers. That's just a picture of grace. It's free. It's more than we can handle. But we have to do something. We have to accept it. We say, listen, I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. And he's not going to say to you, oh, man, you deserve to burn. He's not going to do that because he takes no pleasure in judging anybody. He wants people to come to him. Here's the hose of my grace. Like, my son died for you, and you come to me, and I just wash you with grace. And once again, every week we go to a table. And I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you are a parent whose child has walked away and you just need the cool water of God's grace to cover you and say, listen, it's not your fault. Some of us find ourselves facing our own tendency to blame others, to shift the guilt away from us, from our own choices. And we need to own up to our own decisions and just come to God. Some of us just need to be quiet and remember the basis of our relationship with God is not our own righteousness, but that of his son. We are all crooked people asking God to continue the process of straightening us out. So wherever you find yourself today, let's meet with Jesus at the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.